Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Genesis. All right. We are going to continue tonight in our study of Genesis. So open, if you will, in your Bibles to Genesis 35. We'll pick back up there in the middle of the chapter. Maybe a couple verses of review. Let's go ahead and start and we'll do verse 5 of Genesis 35. We're going to try to cover a good bit of ground here in the remaining time we've got tonight. Don't worry, I'll tell you already, we're not going to, we're not going to go through every name in the genealogy tonight. I'll do my best to kind of summarize and hit the highlights there. Genesis 35, uh, I said verse 5. Let's start there and read together through verse 15. And they journeyed. And the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him, and he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alan Bakuth. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and to your descendants after you I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. Father, we give you thanks once again for your word and ask that by your spirit you'd give us understanding here this evening. Help us, Lord, to apply it to our lives, to take from it, Lord, what you have for us tonight. That There might be change, Lord, transformation in our hearts and in our minds. Bless our evening, Lord, uh, continually, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here, remember, Jacob has now returned. He's, he's been back in the land for a number of years at this point since he uh, crossed over uh, the river there, had his initial encounter with his brother. And so he's been back for some time, but if you recall, he had sort of gotten off track again. He had dwelt in an area that was not uh, what God had for him, uh, influence from the world and the pagan, uh, the pagan nations around him, or the pagan uh, cities. And uh, uh, finally he gets to a point where uh, he, he, he recognizes, he's awakened to the fact that he has essentially backslidden. And, and Jacob begins to experience revival in his life and praise God for it because ultimately it's, it's revival that, that, that leads to blessing. And, and great blessing comes from revival in the life, especially of a patriarch. And, and I don't just mean patriarch in the biblical sense, but revival in the life of a father, of a leader, of a family, of a home. It makes a difference. Things happen because of that. Trajectories, if you will, 
paths that people are on can begin to change because a leader comes back to God. And, and, and I don't know how far off track Jacob himself got, but we know that there was idolatry within his house. There, was, there were pagan idols in his, in his own home, if you will. His kids were in, engaging in, in horrific acts. And so he comes to this place where he says, no more. And he remembers that God, has call, God called him originally to go to a, a specific place, a place that he had not yet gone to, a place that was truly the, the beginning. It was the beginning of his walk with God. Uh, it was this place, Bethel, where he had previously met with God. Bethel means house of God. And so God reminds him, this is where I called you to go. And so for us, it's this reminder too that when we find ourselves in a place, in a situation kind of of our own making, we need to be willing in those moments to go, man, wh- wh- where have I gone? Where, where have I gotten off track? And, and, and what do I do? Well, I need to go back to the beginning. I need to go back to that place where I was truly alive, where God was at work in my life. And this is what Jacob does. And so he goes back to uh, Bethel. He goes back to this place, back to the beginning. It just And we touched on this last time, Revelation chapter 2 and the, the letter to the, to the church there in, in Ephesus. And, it, and, and God says to them, you've left your first love. And so repent and do the first works. And so Jacob here, he, he repents and he does the first works. He goes back to the beginning. But he doesn't just go back to that place because Bethel means house of God. But it says that he goes to verse 7 and he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel. Because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. As Jacob finally goes back to the place he was supposed to go all along, he returns to this place. And, and yes, as I kind of alluded to already, I think this is going to make all the difference for his family in, in generations and in years to come. But he doesn't just go back to the house of God. He calls it El Bethel, which means the God of the house. And, and you see, it may seem minor there. In fact, in, our, in, our, in, in the Word of God here, it's just a, a matter of one, one word, two letters. But it means all the difference here that he's going not simply to the house of God, but to the God of the house. People over and over can come to church expecting to have some sort of experience, expecting God to move and work and do different things. But if all they're doing is in religion, going to church, well, then nothing's going to happen. It's the God of the church. Right, And so it's an important distinction here for Jacob as he has this revival in his life that he knows, I need God in my life again. Now it's an interesting thing here in verse 8 as we read that it says, now Deborah, it seems almost kind of like this, this one verse is just sort of inserted in there, dropped in there somewhat randomly. It says, now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. Now, why is this here? Well, we don't know for sure um, other than I can presume that, that, that for Deborah, being Rebecca's nurse, she probably played a pretty significant role in Jacob's life. No doubt she played a, a big role in raising Jacob, and she's been with him to this time. And so the fact that she dies here uh, is, is the first of what we'll see is, is much loss for Jacob um, as he continues here. And so it's important for us to note this as well because not only does this then begin sort of another uh, process of, of, of breaking, of brokenness for Jacob. He's going to experience a good bit of loss here through these next several verses. Um, and so as he experiences this, it, it's going to start to do something in Jacob's life again. 
He's experienced revival here, and, and God's continuing to change this man, and it's going to make a difference in the, the trajectory of his family. But I think it's also important for us to notice here that here he is, he's in a place of, of he's gone back to the beginning, he's in a place of, uh, he's on the, the, the spiritual mountaintop, if you will, he's experiencing revival in his life, but it doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that everything's going to go perfectly. It doesn't mean that hurt is no longer a part of his life. And we have to understand that. That even though we can experience great revival in our lives and we can come back to a place where we're, we're, we're right with God, we're walking with God, it doesn't make all the problems go away. And we see this immediately here for, for Jacob. It goes from this wonderful place of worship to someone close to him has died. And that is the Christian life. But we see here now that Jacob is seemingly able to navigate some of these things differently than he has before. And so here, no doubt, a, a significant loss to him, someone who was close to him. But then, verse 9, then God appeared to Jacob again. And so you see, this is how God works. God is faithful in our lives. Even though we go through trials, or we could even say, not even, that, even though we go through trials, but, but God is faithful in that we go through trials, right? But God uses these trials in our lives. Our men's fellowship on Tuesday morning this week, we considered there in Isaiah chapter 6 and, and that, that famous passage that talks about in the year that King Uzziah died. This is the, the call narrative for the prophet Isaiah. It's in the year that King Uzziah died. This king that was a good king and ruled for a long time, it was in a, in a, in a period or in a time of, of loss and a time of mourning and a time of questioning. That's when God showed up in this prophet's life. And so it is with each of us that God allows times of brokenness in our lives so that He can show up and He can remind us who, of who we are. He can continue to call us or reaffirm that calling in our life. And that's what He does here. And then God appeared to Jacob again when He came from Paddan Aram and He blessed him. God is so faithful. And the interesting thing is, is that this seems to be the first time that God has appeared to him again since, since He first had the dream telling him to go to Bethel. Now, I would not pretend to, to suggest that everything has been recorded, so it's not to say that God didn't appear to Jacob at all, but in terms of what Scripture tells us, there was a gap between when God appeared to Jacob in a dream and told him, go to this place, and that he didn't, he didn't appear to him again until Jacob went to that place. And so that time in between, you could say that Jacob was in some respects outside of God's will, but as he comes back, God is there, and God is faithful, and God moves and works and restores him. He's experiencing revival, and then God comes to him and reminds him again, here is who you are, Jacob. Here is who I've made you to be. Here's what I'm going to do in your life. And so, my goodness, God's grace is so wonderful. He's so merciful. And God said to him, verse 10, Your name is Jacob. But your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he reminds him now, you're no longer Jacob, you're Israel. And so he called his name Israel. And also God said to him, I am God Almighty. And so he not only does he remind Jacob of who he is, but he reminds Jacob of who, of who, of who he is, of who God is. I'm God Almighty. And he gives them a command, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you. Kings shall come from your body. He's saying, here is the promise. It's still good. It's still active. 
And once again, we can so often find ourselves when we've gotten off track and, and, and maybe we're coming back to God that we can convince ourselves that what God had for me at one point is no longer there. I'm beyond God's grace. I'm beyond God's mercy. But what we see in the, in the life of Jacob and others like him is that, no, God's faithful. He's faithful. He forgives. In the land which I gave, verse 12, Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and to your descendants after you I give this land. Verse 13, then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. God in his faithfulness reminds Jacob of who he is, reminds him of his promises. But once again, this does not mean that everything is easy. But we see that Jacob is able to begin to handle these different things that come his way differently. Verse 16, Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. So it's important to know that Jacob is 105 years old at this point, about to have another baby. And it comes to pass, verse 17, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. So here we have the account of, of Rachel's death. She gives birth to another child. If you recall, um, in her previous delivery, there was less of a sense of, God, you've finally given me a child, but more of a, I want another one. And, uh, and she kind of made that her aim. She made that her focus. And indeed, she had another child. But in the process, she dies. And she's, uh, she's buried. In fact, um, you know, it's believed that her grave is, is still very much recognizable and marked still today and celebrated there on the journey to Bethlehem. And uh, this serves as another point of brokenness in Jacob's life. And so in a relatively short period of time now, uh, he's, he's lost a woman that was very close to him that played a key role in his upbringing. And now he's lost one of his wives here, the, the, the original wife, the original woman that he had set his heart on, that he had pursued. Um, and this ultimately serves to play a role in making Jacob more into the man that he was created to be. And so what we're going to see with Jacob from this point forward, though we're going to uh, hear less of him, read less of him as we shift our focus to Joseph, it should be recognized that, that really from this point forward, from the time that he goes up to what he refers to as El Bethel, that he's a bit of a different man. He's had a lot of experiences, and, and now loss is no doubt playing a role in how he lives his life, how he handles himself, and even his faithfulness to God. And so he's going to continue to really journey from here. Verse 21, then Israel, and so we know that It'll go back and forth, um, referring to Jacob as Israel in some cases, Jacob in others. Most of the time, if it's Israel, it's positive. If it's Jacob, he's done something in the flesh. 
And then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent. So notice he's still living in tents as the way it was instructed. He apparently has given up that idea of building a house. Um, he did that once and then was done with it. And so he pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. So he has lost Deborah, close to him, mother figure to him. He's lost Rachel. And now he hears word that his son has lain with one of his wives. And it's not just... Uh, you know, that in and of itself would be, of course, an offense. Um, but this is Rachel's handmaiden. And so as much as we're inclined certainly to look at this and to go, man, the dude shouldn't even have had four wives, right? Um, he did. That's just the case. I mean, it's just the fact of it. He, he did. And, and so he inevitably was close with these women. They were his wives, um, and then there are two, Leah and, and Rachel, and their handmaidens. Um, legally, he was allowed to have them as a wife in this time. And if there was to be one of his wives that would comfort him through the time of loss of Rachel, which one would it have been? This very one, right? Yet here, one of his sons, who, who, who again is, seems to be on just sort of a, a, a pattern of fleshly thinking and, and fleshly actions um, lays with Bilhah. And, uh, and so Jacob, you know, we don't know exactly how he finds out about it, um, but now this is the third offense, if you will. This is the third thing that's, that, that's coming his way, the third wave that's, that's perhaps overwhelming him. And so he's in a tough spot at this point, and, 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 and it can't be lost on us. This man experienced great revival. God appears to him, reminds him of who he is, reminds him of his promises, yet then these things just keep coming. But we see, or rather never again are we going to see in, in Jacob's life where he really starts to get off track again. From here on, the man seems to remain faithful. And so we can trust and we can at least make the assumption that his faith is getting him through these moments. Now it says the sons of Jacob were 12, verse 23. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. Verse 27, then Jacob, he's 120 years old now at this point, comes to his father Isaac. So Isaac's still around. If any of you are thinking, Isaac, he's back. Uh, he's been there. Uh, I don't know how many trips uh, over, these, over this time Jacob maybe made home to see his dad, but we know of this one. As he comes to his father Isaac, who is 180 years old, at Mamre, or Kerjeth Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. So Isaac's still there. Isaac's very old at this point. If you recall back when, when, when uh, 
Jacob was just getting ready to head out. Well, he actually wasn't even planning on heading out. It was at that point when he and Esau, there was going to be the blessing. And, and at that point, Isaac was, he was, he was dim of the eyes, right? He couldn't see very well. He was, he was in bed. Uh, he thought that death was upon him. And that's why it was time to take care of business and to bless his sons. And that's the whole, that's the time when, when the whole trickery went down and Jacob pretended to be his brother and he was found out and he had to get out of there. Now Isaac's still around. And so Jacob comes to him, and now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And so Isaac breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. And so both Esau and Jacob are there. It seems that this relationship is still reconciled. And uh, Jacob is truly now, I think we could say, a, a broken man at this point. Um, and that when we hear such a thing, we can think of it as a bad thing, but it's, it's, it's really not. Um, I don't know that I would describe God in this way regularly, just from the standpoint of it's not necessarily a winsome way of describing Him, but God's kind of in the business of breaking people. And it's a good thing. Again, what we talked about this week in our men's fellowship on Tuesday morning, that, that God allows us to go to those places of brokenness because in brokenness we're humble before Him. And when we're humble before Him, we recognize who He is and, and then our, 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 what our standing should be before Him because before we were broken, we were operating in, in pride and we were operating in our own strength, but suddenly now we're in a place where we say, I, 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 what, Who am I? Who am I, Lord? And we can then worship Him rightly, having a better understanding of who He is. And then it's in those moments that He says, okay, now I can use you. That's where He calls us. That's where He reminds us of the call. And so Jacob here, though, from, from Deborah uh, to Rachel to, to, to Bilhah and the incident with his son to now his father. I mean, over and over again here, there's loss that he's faced with. And this comes on the heels of revival. Now, as we come to the end of this here, in, in chapter 36, we're going to be given insight into Esau and his lineage. And it does seem to some degree like a little bit of a departure, but uh, the uh, human authors who penned these things saw fit to include the genealogy at this point. Uh, chances are um, we can be fairly confident that Genesis was penned by a handful of different individuals and in that uh, oftentimes, especially the genealogies, were kept by the individuals themselves and then taken and inserted into the book as a whole. And so this was the, uh, the, the place that they saw fit, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to place this passage. It's an important that we remember, too, when we get to genealogies, that all Scripture, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. A lot of people don't love to camp out in the genealogies, but sometimes it can be kind of fun. It can also sometimes be a little overwhelming to make your way through it, right? But it's, it's important to understand and that this is, this is God's Word. It's there for a purpose. It's there for our understanding. And so they give us this. God saw fit to put here an understanding of Esau's lineage. And so it says in chapter 36, verse 1, Now, this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. And we're going to see this over and over again. We'll read that Esau is Edom. It, it makes it clear here that, that he is the father of the Edomites. And Esau is a true picture of the flesh. This chapter, as I mentioned, contains his lineage. And, and it's here because God wants us to know about it. And, and to understand that the Edomites, they lived outside of the promised land. Which is an, even more an indication of the flesh. 
of the fact that, that Esau rejected the blessings and promises of God. Now, it's important that we understand for a moment here what's just happened prior to this chapter. Revival in Jacob's life. Jacob returning to God, as it were. Jacob reinforcing his, his belief in the one true God of Israel. Say, determining, I'm going to follow God. Telling his family, get the idols out of here. We're, we're moving. <laughs> we're leaving this city. We're getting back to our roots. And so, then all of a sudden, we're confronted with the, the lineage of Esau, which is entirely fleshly. And so there is a comparison here that is right for us to see. In verse 2, Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan. Remember, much to his parents' dismay and their disappointment, Esau took foreign wives. He took a third wife as a way to try and sort of uh, win their favor back. And it's like, well, man, taking another wife isn't going to win the favor back. Repent. Believe in God. That's what's going to bring favor. And so he's, he's married foreign wives, and we begin then to get the names of the people who are part of his family. Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Aholibama, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite. Now Ada, in other genealogies, has her name changed to uh, Basimeth. Um, and so if you look at, there's, there's three different times where we see these genealogies in Genesis. I, don't, I think it's Genesis 26, 28, and then here. Don't quote me on that. And we'll see different names in each of those. And there's a variety of, uh, of reasons given for that, whether it's because um, they had more than one name, especially if the first genealogy was used prior to the marriage and then the name changes slightly. Um, in some cases, a different name is used for the sake of um, uh, not identifying uh, so directly with their pagan heritage. Um, and so that's some of the reasoning behind why we see some of the different names. And it could be simply that, that Esau said, no, your name's going to be different because I don't want people to know at this point that you are from where you are from. Um, we don't know any of that for sure uh, other than um, we see the differences in each of the genealogies there. Now, uh, Holabama, which is an interesting name, isn't it? Um, means tent of the high place. So what does that mean? It means she's a temple prostitute. Okay, so when we talk about Esau in the flesh, the foreign wives that he took, the, the way in which he built his family, uh, and truly, uh, this was um, very much in, in direct contradiction to what was expected of him, what was desired of him, and certainly what was pleasing to the Lord. Verse 3 in Besameth, so he actually uh, has two wives that can go by the same name, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nebaioth. Um, so Esau has three wives, two wives uh, with the name of Besameth. And in my opinion, why did he change their names? I, I, th I think their names were different because of his attempts to try and cover things up. And I think that's the pattern that we see generally, not only in Scripture, but in our own lives. If we call it something different, it makes us feel a little bit better, right? And we see that happening still today. Words matter. But so much of what we see in our culture today that's outright sin is being called something else just to try and make people feel better about it. And I could come up with a really long list, but there's no point in spending time on the names of sin in our culture today. You can do that for yourself, right? I'm sure you can come up with a, a good list of your own of all the different ways in which we indulge the flesh today and we call it a million different things that make us feel better about what it is, but at the end of the day, it's still sin. Now, Aida bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basemath bore Ruel 
and Aholabamah bore Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Now look at this, in verse 6, Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle and all his animals, and all his goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan. And where'd he go? What's the land of Canaan, by the way? Is that, is that the land that God said, this is the land for you? Yes. Where's he go? And he went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. Now the reason given is that their possessions were too great for them to dwell together and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. And so he goes across the Jordan. He goes into the land that was not directed for them to live in. And the area that he goes to, Mount Seir, is the area of, of Petra that we know today. Uh, Indiana Jones fans and the whole, you know, uh, man, what's that one called? Is that one the Lost Ark? Raiders? No, no, no. The last one. No, that's the first one. Last Crusade. Whoo! Thanks. Man, smoke was about to come out. So where are they going in the end? Now, Petra still has its purpose in, in end times prophecy, and that's, that's for another night. But that's the area that they're in, and, and that's a place that they built, an impenetrable fortress. And so he goes over to this place, but that's the important thing to note here. He goes away. He goes away from the promises of God. And so here, here's the first thing that, that, that may stand out to some of you. is You look at this and you go, well, it, it, he was such a bad guy. And he was such a fleshly guy. But man, he's super rich. He's blessed. He's got so much stuff that he can't stay where his brother's at. They've all got too much stuff. It's just like we need a little more space here. And, 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 a, and a decent thing for us to think in this moment would be like, why do the wicked prosper? That question's been asked throughout history, right? And my answer is, that's the way it is. It's always been that way, right? It's always been that way. That's the way that, 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 that this world functions today. But that's not the way that it will. And that's what we have to look at. When we find ourselves stuck in a pattern of stinking thinking and being jealous of, of those who are, who are seemingly living the good life but not doing good things, and find ourselves going, oh, well, that's not fair. It means that you're thinking too much about this life and not about the next. Not about the one that God has truly called you to. You're thinking too much about this world and this kingdom and not the one that you're a part of. And so, yes, sometimes we see the wicked prosper. But what we need to pay attention to here, and the point for us, is that of the line of Esau are, and look at this, we, we already know, just based off of the few that we've touched on, that there's some, there's some unsavory people that are a part of his lineage here. And ultimately what we'll see is that of the line of Esau, there are Canaanites, Horites, Ishmaelites, and eventually Amalekites. Now, if you're not too familiar with your ites, what that basically means is they're all enemies of Israel. And they will find their destruction, whether they already have or they will. They become enemies of Israel. And so yeah, he's got some stuff. But what of the generations to follow? What of his end? What of his finish? So here we see that Esau leaves the promised land and he forfeits the blessing and promises of God for temporal pleasures. And this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. Verse 10, these were the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau, and Ruel, the son of Besameth, the wife of Esau. And the sons of Eliphaz were Timon, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenez. Now Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These were the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. And so you've got the Amalekites now. Now who's a famous Amalekite in history? Anybody know? Has something to do with Esther. 
Yeah? You got it? Haman, that's right. What do we know about Haman? What did he want to do? Kill them all. He's of the line of Esau. Right? So, so lest we look at Esau and go, oh man, look at all this stuff and all this stuff. Why does he get to be blessed in this way? No, look at what has happened through his life. And because Saul wasn't obedient and wiping them out as commanded, then, then that's what happens. Right? So all these things are connected. Now, verse 13 through 21. You guys get to read it tonight. Okay? Sometimes I go through these. Tonight we don't have enough time. We're going to make their way all the way. So, so, so from 13 through 21, and you guys will read it as your bedtime reading. What you see in there, one of the things that stands out, where's it at? Um, oh, man. I lost my highlight. Somewhere in there are the Horites. Thank you. There we go. These were the sons of Seir, the Horite, who inhabited the land. Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. The Horites are related to the Anakim. They were the giants that were in the land. So he's got this in the mix as well. And so they become very fierce warriors as well and are a real pain to the nation of Israel. And it goes on from there, and the sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemim. Lotan's sister was Timnah. And it continues to go on and on and on, skipping ahead to verse 29. There were the chiefs of the Horites, Chief Lotan, Chief Shobel, Chief Zibion, Chief Anna, Chief Dishon, Chief Ezer, and Chief Dishan. These were the chiefs of the Horites, according to their chiefs in the land of Seir. Now these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. So here in Edom, there's this sense of we have kings. So because of these earthly pleasures, because of these fleshly pursuits, because of, you know, you got warriors, you got giants, you got wealth, you got power, you got all these different things. And they're saying, well, look, we've got kings. Before any other people around here have kings. Well, did we really want a king? That's not what God's design was. And what happens? Once again, the, this, this pattern ends up being something that, that is a stumbling block for Israel. Remember in 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel in chapter 8, verse 5, of the judges, the time of the period of the, uh, you go from prophet, right, to judges, to kings. Now appoint a king, they say, they cry out to Samuel. Now appoint, to, now appoint a king to lead us. Why or how? Such as all the other nations have. We want to be like them. And isn't that the way we are sometimes too? Oh, Lord, look at the way the wicked prosper, and look at all the things they have, and look at all the things they do, and, and oh, it seems so fun. I want to be like that. I want to have that too. And so, and so here, again, the, the line of Esau and the effect that it has on God's people. And, and furthermore, they're proud of the fact that they have this king. They're saying, in Edom, you know, we've got kings before anybody else has kings. And so I've already told you, they live in the area of Sarah across the Jordan where Petra's at. What's of Petra today? It's a dust bowl. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. And so again, you, it's just, it's apparent here, the things that they pursue that look good in the moment, but they don't last. Continues on, verse 32. You see, uh, you just continue on in the genealogy there, and, and specifically in verse 40 and following, you have more of the leaders. Uh, these were the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their families and their places by their names. Chief Timnah, Chief Alva, Chief Jetheth, Chief Aholabama. Note that one. You've heard that name before, right? There's a show that there's a female leader there um, that obviously she has quite a 
um, she holds quite a bit of power. And she was a, she's a temple prostitute. And so you, you get a sense then of how much the pagan religion is involved. Okay. It was all the way there then to, the, to verse 43 and concludes stating once again, Esau was the father of the Edomites. It's not a compliment. <laughs> it's a statement of fact, but it's certainly not what, what we would want. Right? could be stated differently, the father of the enemies of God's people. Galatians chapter 6, verse 8 tells us that the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. He was prosperous, prosperous for a time, but corruption came. And so we see in this lineage, this family, though outwardly prosperous, inwardly they're corrupt, and there's no legacy, only shame. Yet this is contrasted with his brother Jacob, Israel, who, far from a perfect man, the example, though, of one who follows God. And here's the other thing, and we'll get through a portion of this here with the remaining minutes we have. As we start to now move forward and look at the life of Joseph, it's interesting to see how this young man, who Scripture makes clear is, is Jacob's favorite, just is what it is, how God uses this man who's in effect raised by a dad who's been changed, by a dad who's been transformed through revival, right? And so we see these wonderful contrasts here. And so um, as we then transition, and this becomes then the last section of Genesis here, uh, we'll begin to focus on Joseph and the remaining 13 chapters. It's really all about Joseph. And so almost a quarter of the text is about this, this one man. And uh, Joseph, like Daniel, is one who really from a biblical perspective has no real mention of sin. If you picked out people from the Bible, um, and of course we know that, that they are not at the level that Jesus is, but if you look at people in the Bible, you really have Jesus, and then you've got Daniel and Joseph in terms of folks that you can read about their life and just go, man, they lived, they lived a pretty amazing life. Obedient. One who lives an upright life. And again, I want us to consider that tonight, especially when you think of, so let's think about for a moment then, all that Joseph saw, all that he experienced, all that he endured, much of which we won't even touch on tonight because we're not going to get you know, move forward in the life of Joseph. I'm just talking about even what he's experienced up to this point in his life. Here as we jump into chapter 37, we'll see that he's 17 years old. In his 17 years of life, think for a moment about what Joseph has seen, what he's experienced, what he's heard, what he's been a part of. In chapter 37, verse 1, Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. So some conclusions are starting to come. We're transitioning now. And again, not to overstate it here, but contrary to his brother, Jacob dwelt in the land that was promised. Jacob has made a decision in his life. He's chosen to follow God. His brother did not. Now Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. So Joseph's out working, and he's working with his brothers, and he's working with his brothers, specifically the sons of the handmaids, the concubines, and apparently these brothers were up to no good. So, jo so Joseph tells his dad. Now this looks to us like Joseph's being a tattletale. We don't know exactly how all this went down. We can presume it was the right thing based off of the relationship with his father that he says, hey, this is what's going on out here. And we'll find out quickly here that his brothers do not like him at all, in part, no doubt, because he went and told on him there, but amongst other things as well. Verse 3, and this is an important one. Now Israel, this is Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children 
because he was the son of his old age. Now, any parent, when they read that, might be inclined to go, oh, you know, you don't, you don't do that. You don't say that. But the dynamic that was happening here amongst Jacob and, and, and his children and his family, to some degree, lent itself to this. And we need to camp here for a moment, and this is where we'll start to, to conclude here tonight. It says, Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children, the son of his old age. You've got to remember, Jacob's family is a bit of a mess. Even though he's held up as the patriarch, even though he's done some incredible things, even though God will, will certainly highlight this man in his life and his faith throughout Scripture, Israel itself, the nation of Israel will exalt him. His life's a mess. He's got children from four mothers. He's been on the run twice. There's idolatry in his, in his, amongst his family. There's been a rape of his daughter. There's been murder that's resulted from it. He's experienced multiple losses. He's, he's, he's been affected by infidelity. I mean, that's quite a bit, is it not? And so for Jacob, there was a unique opportunity in his older age with this young man, his son, a unique man whom God had blessed. There was a new opportunity for Jacob to invest in one of his sons differently than he had the others. And Jacob had learned a thing or two at this point. He wasn't the same man anymore. You see, Joseph's experience, Joseph, his son, his experience no doubt is a good bit different than that of some of his siblings. Because Joseph, as it were, is raised more by Israel than he was by Jacob. He was raised more by a changed man than he was by the old man of his dad. And once again, think of all that Joseph observed. As I, as I talked about, listed just even a few of those things, know that, that Joseph was there. He was a part of some of that. He maybe didn't see it all, but he certainly heard about it. He saw the effects of it. All that his siblings had been through. To know that his brothers had gone out and essentially wiped out a city and taken the women and children as slaves. You don't talk about trauma. But what of his time with his dad now? Now we can only speculate of what his experience was with his dad. But his dad was a changed man and they spent time together. I can't help but find myself thinking, what did they talk about? What were the things that, that, that Jacob was communicating to his son Joseph? What was the effect that it had as he began to talk to him about, about, let me tell you about when we crossed the river. Let me tell you about when I wrestled with God. Let me tell you about when I met God at Bethel. He changed my life, son. I made a decision. You remember? You remember when I said, get rid of everything? We're going? We're moving? He saw the effects of this at a younger age. I say all this to say Joseph, for all intents and purposes, was raised in a broken home. He had every reason to say, I reject this God. He had every reason to say, I hate my family. He had every reason of his own making to delve into the things of the world and to justify it in his flesh. To live a wasted life and, and everyone else would probably say, yeah, that, that makes sense. We saw that coming. But he doesn't. He doesn't. It's the exact opposite. He lives an incredible life used by God in mighty and powerful ways such that he saves a nation. And that should give all of us hope. As we begin to, to really start to see the effects of this comparison, Esau and, and his whole lineage becomes enemies of Israel, yet Jacob, whose life is a bit of a mess, but he says, I'm going to follow God, begins to produce something entirely different. So this is where we know we know this story, right? Jacob, and he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So in his love for Joseph, Jacob makes for him a coat, 
Sorry if I burst any bubbles here tonight, but it's probably not a coat of many colors. Do we know that? The word color in the original language speaks actually of length. So it's probably not a multicolored coat if you're a big fan of the play or the musical or whatever it is. It's actually a long coat. So he makes him a long coat. Why is it a long coat? Because a wealthy person would wear a long coat. It would, be a, it would signify that they were prosperous and that they really didn't have to work a whole lot because you're not going to go work and get all dirty in a long coat with long sleeves. So he had long sleeves and it went all the way down to his shoes. Further though, this signified not just that he was loved, but that he was probably the favored son who would receive the blessing. So you can start to understand a little bit of why his brothers didn't care for him too much because here's this young punk. Dad's favorite gets the fancy coat, and he's gonna get all the he's gonna get all the stuff. Now bear with me. I wanna I wanna wanna make it to this point here. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. I'll go quickly. So he said to them, "Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf." <laughs> Thinking, man, don't share that dream, Joseph. You could say that Joseph lacked a little bit of tact or situational awareness, right? But this dream, this dream that he shares is used in part to make passage for him to Egypt. This is going to seal the deal, really, on them taking him and getting rid of him. And so remember that God is at work here. And so this also foreshadows then what's to come because there will come a time when his brothers are going to bow before him and this dream does come true. Verse 8, And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And it's important as we start to consider the life of Joseph, because this is going to take us through the end of our study of Genesis, that Joseph is a type of Jesus. He gives us a pattern of Jesus. He points us to Jesus. And we're going to see many similarities in his life as we see in the life of Jesus. Even here, with the rejection that comes from his brothers, is similar to what Jesus faced from his own family and from others. There in John chapter 19, verse 15, as they declare, we have no king. Right? Remember when Jesus is on trial and, and Pontius Pilate says, shall I release to you your king? They said, we have no king. He will not rule over us. But again, we know they, he, he will and they will bow down just as every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so then Joseph dreams another dream, verse 9, and tells his brothers about it. And, and people are probably thinking you, you shouldn't tell about the other dream. They're already mad enough at you. He says, look, I have dreamed another dream and this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bound down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? His brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. One could certainly ask in this moment, Joseph, you seem to be a little dense. What's the deal? Why did you share this again? But in some respects, it's as if Joseph, and certainly God, knows what needs to be said. Think of all the things that Jesus could have said that he didn't, that if I were there, I, I, I would probably be trying to argue my way out of a situation, but Jesus remained silent. Were the things that he, 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 he didn't seemingly need to say, but he, but he did because what? Because Jesus knew what needed to happen. It seems there's a sense that God's working through Joseph, declaring certain things that need to be communicated such that events can happen. And just like Jesus... After Jesus was born and the visitors, all the different visitors came and they told Mary of all that they had heard, that Jesus was the Savior, the Christ. People marveled, but Mary, what did Mary do? She kept these things and pondered them in her heart. And so for Jacob too, while others were not as excited, of course, to hear of Joseph's dream, perhaps even Jacob thought it somewhat foolish for him to have shared it. 
Jacob here, he keeps the matter in his heart. He ponders it. He thinks, man, what of this? What's going to come from this? What would this mean? And we know what it would mean. Again, as we begin our study of the life of Joseph, we know that Joseph would soon, will soon be sold off as a slave. He will prosper in Egypt. One day he will be the second in command of Pharaoh, having amassed great resources to care for a nation during a time of famine. His family will unknowingly come before him. He would be the means of their salvation. And Joseph would declare that what was meant for evil, God meant for good. This little boy who grew up in a messed up situation, who saw a lot of things he probably shouldn't have, experienced a lot of things, but whose dad would have an encounter with God, would come to a place of surrender, would declare, get rid of the idols, we're, we're going to God, my life is being changed. It would change the course of Joseph's life, I, I believe. And so you see, there, there are those who continue after the flesh, and their family often follows, but there are those who, no matter the mistakes, no matter how far they've gone, they return to God, they choose to do things differently, and it changes the trajectory for generations, right? That's the God that we serve. That's the pattern we see here. And it's a wonderful thing to see this comparison between one who ultimately ruined his life versus one who said, I'm going to follow God, and it made all the difference for generations to come. That's the God we serve, amen? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks, Lord, again this evening for your word, the power of it, Lord, how it pierces our hearts and our minds. Thank you for your spirit that gives us understanding and helps us, Lord, to apply it to our lives. And may we here tonight, Lord, just glory in the truth that's declared in your scripture. Stephen, Lord, to consider the way in which you've worked throughout history, the lives that you changed, the way you protected your people. Lord, it's also amazing. But we, may we not miss, Lord, also the reminder of the blessing that comes from revival, Lord, the blessing that comes from obedience. That though sometimes there are consequences, Lord, to our actions, we serve a God, you, Lord, who are gracious, uh, a God who reconciles, uh, that when we follow you, when we're obedient, we can trust, Lord, that uh, you can make beauty from ashes, uh, and you can use lives that uh, people, Lord, that may otherwise have been forgotten. Uh, Lord, all of us have things in our past, but we can trust, Lord, that you're able to, to do an awesome work and use us for your glory moving forward. And so may we be reminded of that truth here tonight as well and encouraged, Lord, to follow after you. We love you, Lord, and praise you, and we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.